Welcome to Black in Time, the podcast remembering pioneering people and defining moments from Black British history. I'm your host Liv and I'm a bit of a nerd. I started this podcast as a challenge to myself to find something that happened each day in Black British history. From births and deaths to events of national and international importance, each episode I'll look at the week to come and explore events that happened each day in history. Here are the events from December 14th through to December 20th. On December 14th, 1780, Ignatius Sancho died. Sancho was a black abolitionist, composer, and Britain's first black voter. Much of what we know about Sancho's life comes from a biography written by an MP at the time called Joseph Jekyll. Sancho was born aboard a slave ship on the Middle Passage in the 1720s. At the age of two, he was taken to England and forced to work as a slave for three sisters in Greenwich. It was during this time that he met the Duke of Montague. The Duke took a shine to Sancho, regularly taking him to his home in Blackheath and supporting his love of reading. Upon the Duke's death, Sancho fled to the Montague house and was employed by the Duke's widow for two years. After the Duchess died, Sancho was left a legacy of £70 and an annuity of £30 a year. In today's money, £70 is roughly equivalent to £16,000 and £30 is roughly equivalent to £7,000. In the 1760s, Sancho married Anne Osborne, a Caribbean woman with whom he had seven children. After the birth of their third child, Sancho returned to work for the Montague descendants. During this time, he immersed himself in music, poetry, reading and writing. In 1766, he wrote to the novelist Laurence Stern asking for his support in the fight against slavery. Sancho often used the medium of letters to record his thoughts on the political, economic and cultural issues of the late 18th century. In 1774, with the help of the Montague family, Sancho and his wife set up a grocery shop on Charles Street in Westminster. They sold goods such as tobacco, snuff, rum and soap. As an independent property owner with a house and business, Sancho was eligible to cast a vote in a British general election. He voted in the October 1774 elections and again in the 1780 elections. In doing so, he became the first known black person to vote in a British general election. On December 15th, 1787, a group of formerly enslaved men, described as the Sons of Africa, wrote to the abolitionist Granville Sharp. When we're taught about the end of transatlantic slavery, it is often through a neat and tidy narrative. We learn of the noble efforts of upper-class white men like William Wilberforce and Josiah Wedgwood, but hear less about the contributions of black abolitionists and freedom fighters. Such narratives obscure the reality of slave resistance and the scores of people fighting for change around the world. The Sons of Africa are one such group. It's worth noting that there is little evidence to suggest that the men named themselves as such. It appears that historians have taken a reference to the group as Sons of Africa to be the name under which they organised. 
The group was formed by Alaudo Equiano and Ottaba Quaguano in the late 18th century. It comprised the formerly enslaved men who were living in London and fighting for the end of slavery. Many of the men were educated and used their literary skills to petition Parliament and other people of influence. The group also embarked on public speaking campaigns and held open meetings to lecture about slavery. A close ally of the group was the Society for the Abolition of the Slave Trade, which comprised a number of white abolitionists, including Granville Sharp. The Sons of Africa were always grateful to those who assisted in their battle against slavery. In their letter to Sharp, they referred to him as a constant and generous friend and said, We cannot do otherwise but endeavour, with the utmost sincerity and thankfulness, to acknowledge our great obligations to you, and with the most feeling sense of our hearts, on all occasions, to express and manifest our gratitude and love for your long, valuable, fatigable labours and benevolence towards us in using every means to rescue our suffering brethren in slavery. We've complained to the police about the police and nothing's been done. We've complained to magistrates about magistrates and nothing's been done. We've complained to judges about judges and nothing's been done. Now it's time to do something ourselves. That statement... On December 16, 1971, after 11 weeks, the trial of the Mangrove Nine came to an end. The trial centred around the case of nine black British activists who were tried for inciting a riot in 1970. The riot in question was a protest march organised in response to the police's targeted harassment of the Mangrove restaurant. The Mangrove was a popular spot for the black community in Notting Hill. It also attracted visits from musicians and activists such as Jimi Hendrix and Nina Simone. During its first year of opening, the Mangrove was raided by the police seven times. Nothing illegal was ever found, yet the raid continued. Eventually, the Mangrove's alcohol and restaurant licences were revoked. The protest on August 8th, 1970, saw 150 members of the community and anti-racist allies march through Notting Hill towards Notting Hill, Nottingdale and Harrow Road police stations. The protesters were met by hundreds of police who initiated the clashes that ensued. The Mangrove Nine were charged with incitement to riot among other offences. The Nine were Barbara Beese, Rupert Boyce, Frank Critchlow, Roden Gordon, Darkus Howe, Anthony Innes, Althea jones Lacoint, Rothwell Kentish and Godfrey Millett. The case against the Mangrove Nine was initially thrown out by a magistrate. However, the Director of Public Prosecutions reinstated the charges against them. Howe and jones Lacoint defended themselves in a bid to expose the political nature of the trial. The remaining nine were represented by the barrister Ian MacDonald. The defendants in counsel also demanded an all-black jury. Justification for this demand came from the principle of a jury of one's own peers, which was enshrined in the Magna Carta. Although this request was refused, the defendants used their objection powers to dismiss 63 white jurors. In the end, they were able to ensure that two of the 12 jurors were black. The trial took place at the Old Bailey in the autumn of 1971 and lasted 55 days. All were acquitted of the main charges of incitement to riot, while four were found guilty of minor charges receiving suspended sentences. Interestingly, the trial made legal history as it brought the first judicial acknowledgement of evidence of racial hatred in the Metropolitan Police Force.
December 17, 1814, the Royal Cornwall Gazette published a highly complimentary write-up of a concert given by a violinist called Joseph Antonio Emedy. It read as follows. Mr Emedy's concert on the violin has seldom been excelled, either in composition or execution. The taste displayed by him, the variations of the air, introduced as the subject of the rondo, the bugle walks, and the clearness and precision he displayed in the performance of the most intricate passages, drew forth long and well-merited bursts of applause. Born in Guinea in 1775, as a child, Emedy was enslaved by Portuguese traders. During his time in captivity, he was supplied with a violin and quickly honed his musical ability. Within a few years, he gained a place among the second violins in the Lisbon Opera Orchestra. Emedy caught the attention of a British captain who kidnapped him and forced him into service as the ship's fiddler. After seven years, he was eventually freed upon arrival in Falmouth in 1799. He settled into life in Cornwall, teaching, performing and composing music. He became famous for his musical talent, entertaining members of Cornwall High Society at balls and concerts. In 1802, Emily married Jane Hutchins, a local tradesman's daughter, and went on to have eight children. The family later moved to Truro, where Emily became the leader of the Truro Philharmonic Society. He passed away on April 23rd, 1835, but his musical talents didn't die with him. His son, Thomas Emedy, went on to become the musical director of a local brass band, and today, one of his direct descendants is a popular musician in Hartford, Connecticut. My black British hero is Lord Peter of Hampstead. He became the first black chairman of the GLC. He gave me my prize when I was eight years old at my school prize giving and made me believe by his example that by brain power On and December 18, 1994, David Pitt, Baron Pitt of Hampstead, died aged 81. Pitt was Britain's longest serving black parliamentarian and dedicated much of his life to fighting for racial justice. Born in Grenada in the early 20th century, he won a scholarship to study medicine at the University of Edinburgh in the 1930s. While at Edinburgh, he became the first junior president of the university's Students' Representative Council. After graduating, he returned to the Caribbean, both practising medicine and playing an active role in Caribbean politics. In 1943, Pitt became a founding member and leader of the West Indian National Party, a socialist party in Trinidad and Tobago. After a disappointing electoral performance, Pitt returned to Britain in 1947. He settled in North London and in 1950, he opened his own surgery in Euston, which he ran for over 30 years, assisted by his wife, Dorothy. From the mid-1950s, Pitt became involved in local politics. In 1959, he became the first black parliamentary candidate standing for Labour in the constituency of Hampstead. During the course of the campaign, he received racist abuse and threatening calls demanding he withdraw from the race. He did not. Two years later, Pitt was elected to London City Council, serving until 1975. In the process, he became the first black candidate elected to a position in local government. In February of 1975, Pitt was appointed to the House of Lords, becoming Baron Pitt of Hampstead. During his maiden speech, he called for a ban on smoking in public places. Pitt also served in the senior leadership teams of racial justice organisations, such as CARD and the Community Relations Commission. In 1985, he became president of the British Medical Association, using his presidential address to push for equality 
in health services. Throughout his life, Pitt was a fierce campaigner and tireless humanitarian. Despite being rarely mentioned in general discourse, his influence remained significant and the issues he fought so hard for are still important to this day. On December 19th, 1966, the Caribbean Artists Movement held its first meeting in Kamal Brathwaite's London office. Brathwaite was born in Barbados and came over to the UK to study, first completing an undergrad at Pembroke College, Cambridge, and then a PhD at the University of Sussex. While in the UK, he noticed that the British didn't seem to be particularly appreciative of the contributions of West Indian people. They weren't well represented at the Commonwealth Arts Festival, nor were many black people found on TV and radio. The 1960s was a period of real social change, with many former colonies in the Caribbean, Africa and Asia gaining independence. As well as connecting with fellow Caribbean artists, Brathwaite was keen to contribute to the progression of race relations in Britain. To get the movement off the ground, he reached out to John LaRose, a Trinidadian cultural activist, and Andrew Sulky, a Jamaican author. In addition to Brathwaite, LaRose and Sulky, the first meeting of the Caribbean artist movement was attended by four other figures. Orlando Patterson, who was lecturing in sociology at LSE. Evan Jones, a Jamaican TV and screenwriter. Dr Lewis James, a former English lecturer at the University of the West Indies. And Aubrey Williams, a Guyanese painter. By February 1967, the Caribbean Artist Movement had grown to 50 members. Although called the Caribbean Artist Movement, the focus was on artists of all kinds, including novelists, poets, theatre makers and writers. Well, I started racing when I was 15 um, at the cycle track at Herne Hill, coming from the school. By the time I was 17, I was British champion, junior. December 20th, 2018, marked the end of a very special exhibition at Grand Parade Galleries in Brighton. The Made in Britain exhibition explored the lives and careers of black British cycling champions from the 1970s to the present day. It was based on years of groundbreaking research by Dr Marlon Moncrief, an academic at the University of Brighton. Moncrief was a former road and track racer who began researching following the 2012 Olympics. Cycling was in its golden age and athletes such as Bradley Wiggins and Victoria Pendleton were at the fore. Conscious of the lack of diversity among the faces of cycling, Moncrief sought to learn more about black British cycling champions. The Made in Britain exhibition explored the lives and careers of black cyclists over 50 years. Among those profiled by Moncrief, were Maurice Burton, the first black British cycling champion, and Trey White, a rising BMX star. Moncrief placed the cyclist histories within the wider sociological context of the cycling boom. He invited viewers to consider representation at an elite level in cycling, as well as exploring barriers to success that black cyclists may have faced. The exhibition ran for 10 days and in 2019, it transferred to the Big Fate Velo at the Hernhill Velodrome. While on display, the exhibition was visited by Bradley Wiggins, who was mentored by Russell Williams, one of the cyclists who featured in Moncrief's exhibition.
You've been listening to Black in Time. I hope you found today's episode as interesting as I did. For more information about any of the topics covered in today's episode, do check out the show notes. If you like the show, please share it with a friend. Follow us on Instagram at Black in Time to track events from the past every day on that day. On next week's episode, we'll be covering events relating to musicians, TV history and cultural activism. Until next time.